Please turn with me to Zechariah, chapter 11. Zechariah is just a couple books before the New Testament. If you find Matthew, there's before it Malachi, and the previous one is Zechariah. Remember in Zechariah, chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. There is the sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruins. There is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of the Jordan is in ruins. Thus says the Lord my God, feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt, those who sell them and say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, but indeed I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. So I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock, I took for myself two staffs, the one I called beauty and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. And I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. And I took my staff beauty and cut it in two, that I might break the covenant which I had made with all the people's. So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock, who were watching me, knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages thirty pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. And I cut in two my other staff, bonds, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the Lord said to me, Next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those who are broken, nor feed those that stand still. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd! Who leaves the flock? A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Thus far, the reading of God's inspired word. Tonight we come to Zechariah chapter 11, and I should be very straightforward in telling you it is not an easy chapter, it is very difficult, at least I found it to be that. But God wants us to depend upon him, that we might understand it from his hand, that we might be dependent upon him. He says this, and we have to believe that he is able to give us understanding. It's called the doctrine of illumination. It is the the other side of the coin of the doctrine of inspiration. We believe that God the Holy Spirit breathed out the words of this book. That's the doctrine of inspiration. And we also believe that God the Holy Spirit enables his people to understand it. That's the doctrine of illumination. And that is what we look for. As in this room that is illumined by these lights in an otherwise perfectly dark night, we need the light 
of the Holy Spirit in order for us to see the light of the word. And we also, of course, make rightful use of good, man, good men who have more light than we do. And I am particularly thankful for John L. Mackay, a friend of this congregation, and his wonderful commentary on this book. But to introduce the chapter, the situation we have, again, we've moved away from the immediate context historically of Zechariah's day. You know, Zechariah has returned from the Babylonian captivity. They're there back in Jerusalem, but things are not wonderful. Mainly the temple is in ruins, and God is prompting them and and, and enabling them to move ahead and strengthening their hand to rebuild the temple. But now, in this latter part of Zechariah, it's, we've moved way into the future, no longer having to do with that immediate situation at all. And now we're looking forward to a day when Israel is once again in a dire condition, once again under the hand of false shepherds that are bringing them to the slaughter. And once again, God in his compassion is sending someone, and we know him to be Christ, sending him to be their true shepherd. But amazingly, Israel ends up refusing the shepherd that is sent to them and sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. And these actions justly bring the wrath of God upon them and upon the nation, the greatest and worst judgment that they'd ever known thus far. And that temple that they were so busy at the moment rebuilding, that temple would be utterly destroyed in AD 70. And that's the, the events of the, ne- of the next chapter, chapter 12, seem to relate to that which happened. After Christ came, after they rejected him, then the Lord eventually brought destruction on the nation in AD 70. So that's the basic historical frame of reference. And what are the themes? There are just a couple of themes I want you, these are not the points, these are just some ideas I want you to keep in mind as we go through it. That one, what is high, or A, what is highly esteemed before God is lightly esteemed before men. What's highly esteemed before God is lightly esteemed before men. They sell him for cheap. They sell the shepherd. They don't receive him. They sell him out for cheap because they'd rather have their godless king. They don't, rat, they don't rightly value the one that God has sent. Another theme also Likewise, is that we will not have this man to reign over us. They'd rather have their false shepherds. They'd rather have their godless king because they simply do not in their hearts want to receive their own rightful king. They want one of their own choosing rather than the true king that God has sent. Well, anyways, the title of this sermon is The Flock Sells Its Shepherd. The Flock Sells Its Shepherd. And three simple points. God sends a shepherd to the doomed flock. Two, they sell him for cheap. And three, they choose another king. God sends a shepherd to the doomed flock. They sell him for cheap. They choose another king. So first, God sends a shepherd to the doomed flock. We read in verse 4, Thus says the Lord, my God, feed the flock for slaughter whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt, those who sail them and say, Blessed be the Lord, I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. Now the sense of verse 5 is pretty easy for us to understand. Those owners who slaughter them and feel no guilt, and the shepherds who do not pity them, 
they're obviously in the hands of false shepherds, those thieves and robbers, like what it says in John 8, or John 10, uh, verse 8, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. He's speaking of the contrast. Christ says, I am the good shepherd, but everyone who has come before me, all those ones in whose hands you now are, that as I speak to you, He's speaking to those who are in the hands of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and said, those are false shepherds, those are thieves, those are murderers, and they will destroy you. That's fairly easy to understand. That's the situation. But the Lord's response to this situation in verse 4, that's not so clear. Not so clear at all. And particularly, unfortunately, it's not so clear in the New King James because the New King James says, feed the flock for slaughter, and it almost seems like you're fattening them up for slaughter in order to, pr- to promote it. But I'm not sure that's, I don't think that's the sense. I think that the ESV actually has it better this time. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. That's the command that he gives. And you see, the Lord has compassion on the people who are in this situation, who are in the hands of the false shepherd. And he gives a command to someone to be a good shepherd for them. And who's that someone? Of course, it's his own son, right? The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who's going to be the good shepherd to the people who are otherwise doomed for destruction, utter destruction. Now, you would think, wouldn't you think that if you were this flock doomed for destruction, You had already had some mark on you ready for the slaughter as these people did. And God then sends you a good shepherd who is willing to help you and take compassion on you and to save you, even at the expense of his own life. Wouldn't you be very thankful? Wouldn't you be so glad to receive a good shepherd? Unfortunately, that's not what happens. Because as we know, the second point is that they sell him for cheap. It says in verse 8, I dismiss the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also poured me. And I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those who are left eat each other's flesh. And you see such a dramatic change here. And at first, of course, I was trying to make sense of this. How could it be? Well, of course, we're talking about a sequence of events. The people have fallen into the hands of the false shepherds. The Lord one more time has compassion upon them and sends the Lord Jesus Christ to them. He came to his own. He he desires that they would be saved. But they reject him. They turn away from him. And eventually the Lord says, I will no longer save you. I will no longer be of help to you. I will let you go your own way. Well, Again, the ESV has this in verse 8. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. That's the situation. They detested me. They don't want me. And I became impatient with them. And I'm no longer going to be patient. He is running out. He has ran out of patience to his rebellious people that do not want him. The NIV has it even more explicit The flock detested me, and I grew weary of them. They rejected Christ, just as they rejected all the true prophets who ever went before them. You know that sequence of events is not the first time, but over and over and over it is again. 
And Matthew 23 puts it the very best that I could possibly put it. Listen here. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Bechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. You see the, the, the heart of the Lord. He is sent to this place, the one who has already stoned the prophets, the one who's already despised and rejected every other prophet and, and helper that has come in the name of the Lord to them. And he says, I want to gather them like a hen, gather the chicks under uh, her, her wings. You would not. You would have none of me. You refuse me. And see, your house is left to you desolate. And so they reject him. That's why. That's what happened. They reject this good shepherd. And the way they reject him, well, in verse 12, it says, Then I said to him, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. The Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. That princely sum they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. That princely sum, that is ironic, that is sarcasm. It's not a princely sum at all. It's a price that is paid for a slave who is accidentally killed. Exodus twenty-one thirty-two. If an ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. It's not a whole lot of money. It's no princely sum. It is a result of the people not at all esteeming what is in front of them. Now, of course, you know the fulfillment. You know the fulfillment that happens in the time of Jesus. And this was precisely the amount that Jesus was sold for. That was precisely fulfilled according to the prophecy in Matthew 26, 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? How about that? What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. Wow, what a bargain. You just imagine them there, these two wretched, wicked people bargaining over their master, their creator. And, and the bargain they arrive at is 30 pieces of silver. And they, count, and they count it out to make sure that, that at least he's getting what he bargained for. I, I, I hope he was glad to get all 30. He wasn't missing any of those 30 pieces of silver. You know what happened to those 30 pieces, though? Didn't actually do Judas any good. I don't know what he was planning on doing with that money. But, of course, he did not live to see any use for it. Um, the strange, what would appear otherwise a very strange thing, if we didn't have the rest of Scripture, we would have no idea what it was talking about. But the verse goes on to say, So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. House of the Lord for the potter. How does that make sense? Well, it only makes sense in the fulfillment of these things. It's amazing how God works. As we go on in Matthew 27, verse 3, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, as Jesus has been condemned, was remorseful. 
And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. If you're keeping track, by the way, who has, who has vindicated Christ in the midst of all this? Herod has. Pilate has a number of times. The, 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 every, I mean, anyone who is competent to render any kind of judgment, in the end, even his own betrayer says this is innocent blood. He was innocent. And they say, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, the house of God. And he departed and he went and he hanged himself. What are they going to do with that money? The chief priest took the silver piece and said, it is not lawful for us to put them in the treasury. Why? They're so scrupulous over the minutiae of the law that they cannot use this blood money to actually put it in the treasury. These good, faithful, upright citizens say it wouldn't be right for us to use this money for the Lord's treasury. So instead, they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. For the potter, well, that's for the potter's field in order that it might be bought. And it was called the field of blood. Well, now, how do you put all these things together? What is the lesson of all these things? This obscure prophecy fulfilled to its perfection. What does it teach us? That that which is highly esteemed before God is lightly esteemed before men. That they would take the one who is of infinite worth. And I mean infinite. I mean, what do you pay even for the price of, of a human being? Right? Thankfully, human life is worth more, I think, today because of the gospel than it was in the past. But how do you put a price? Insurance companies sometimes put a price. Court systems sometimes put a price on human life, and it is a high price. But how do you put a price on the son of the living God? Well, we see what man thinks of him because of the low price that he's given. You know, this is the other side. This is the flip side of Luke sixteen fifteen. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And what it's saying is that God and the world, they have opposite value systems. And it's, it's helpful for us to see it is opposite that the things that are highly esteemed among men, they're lightly esteemed by God. And the things that are most highly, and what could be more highly esteemed than God's own son, his only begotten son, what could be more highly esteemed before God than his own son? And what do they put? What value do they put on him? Thirty pieces of silver. It's not much. You know, I'm reminded of this word "despised." That he was despised. That's a word here. At Genesis twenty-five thirty-one. You know that uh, that Esau sold his birthright, um, and despised is the way you put it. You remember that. Uh, Jacob says, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what's that birthright to me? He wasn't actually about to die. He was just hungry. And Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. And he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. What is his birthright? He is the covenant heir. He is the firstborn. He sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. And he ate and drank and he arose and he went his way. Some bread and some stew. That is how much he valued his birthright. And so Psalm, and so it, it, what it says is that he, uh, thus Esau despised his birthright. That is how, that is the right way to understand it. He despised it because he esteemed it so lightly. 
That's ex- the exact same Hebrew word as we find in the Messianic Psalm 22. Uh, Psalm 22, 6, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. It doesn't just mean that they didn't like him. That word also has the sense of that they, he was valued very, very low on that totem pole. He's not valued very much at all. And likewise in Isaiah 53, 2, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised, and we did not esteem him. And brothers and sisters, how true it is, how true it is in this world today. You see how lightly esteemed Christ is. Those of you, for instance, who handed out those invitations were reminded again how lightly esteemed. Those of you who have handed out the the evangelical times that contain the words of life, how lightly esteemed. The vast majority of those things ended up in the rubbish, didn't they? The word of life, for many of them, for some of them, that may have been their only contact with the saving gospel and Christ was not esteemed. His word was lightly esteemed. They were despised. How sad indeed these things. And I would just ask you, how do you value the Lord? Do you esteem him rightly? Unregenerate people don't value these things, but how much do you, child of God, esteem Christ and all of his benefits and his word? Well, as I say, we, we, um, God has sent this shepherd to the doomed flock, but instead they sell him for cheap. And verse in our, in our, our third heading, they have chosen another king for themselves. And verse 6, I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, said the Lord, but indeed I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. And here's again another conundrum, into the hand of his king. What does that mean? At first glance, maybe into the hand of the neighbor's king. The neighbor has come and the neighbor's king has come, but it's a strange way of putting it. And really, I, th- I think it's better understood as into the hands of their own king. But how is that possible? How is it that they would be given into the hands of one who is their king? How is it that their own king would destroy them? And here we have to consider the words of John 19.15. And there are terrible words. I, I barely know, I scarcely know of any more tragic words in all of scripture than these. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king. The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. No king but Caesar. They have chosen another king. That is their king. And in judgment, God would give them over to that king. And this chosen king, he would send his army to completely destroy them. He would not leave one stone upon another on that temple. He would utterly destroy them all in AD 70. He would truly, the words of this prophecy would come true. They would be given in to the hands of their chosen king. Now again, that brings to mind that theme that I mentioned, that we will not have this man to reign over us. This is from Luke nineteen fourteen. Lord willing, we'll come to it in the not too distant future. But it's so important, I'll read it here. His citizens hated him. This is speaking of 
This is, of course, a parable. It's a parable picturing God and his kingdom on earth. His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. In verse 27, at the end of all these things, after they have rejected everyone that has come, in verse 27, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Now, this has been the way of all of Scripture. Starting in the very Garden of Eden, they have God, but they choose to listen to Satan. The, the, the slaves in Egypt, they are in bondage, and he is trying to kill them. They are in the process of actually being killed. They are definitely the flock that is a sign for slaughter. They have the mark of slaughter on them. But when the uh, Redeemer is sent to them, Moses, they don't listen to him. They despise him. Who made you to be a judge? And when he comes again, 40 years later, they do not listen to him. And they said, this be upon you. May God judge between you and me. You're making things worse here. And so forth. God says, sends Moses, they'd rather stay with Pharaoh. They have Samuel to lead them, but they want Saul to reign over them. They're in the hands, particularly, of criminal rulers all throughout the later portion of the monarchy. But they reject all the prophets who come to help him. And then, at long last, God sends them his only son. Surely, surely they would receive him. Well, that's the premise of another parable, right? The parable of the, uh, the vineyard, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute. But we know, unfortunately, they don't receive him. We know historically that we have the words of, of Matthew 15. Now, the feast, this is Pilate, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. He was a terrorist. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he's always done to them. But Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And say, No, we don't want him. The chief priest stirred up the crowd so that, uh, so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Crucify him. They didn't want the Son of God. They wanted a terrorist, a murderer, a robber to be released to him, Barabbas. Now the question is, what is going to happen to such people? What is going to happen to such people? Well, in verse 6, in our own passage, I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, but indeed I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. And that's what was to happen. And we understand all these things in the light of that parable of the vineyard I mentioned. Luke 20, verse 9, began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to the vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers, that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the vineyard, but the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant, and they beat him, treated him shamefully, and sent him empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him and also cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. 
So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. But we know that it is precisely and exactly what happened. They at long last finally exhausted God's patience and he could not send them any greater than he had. And they rejected him. They rejected this good shepherd. God in his mercy and grace had sent him. Brothers and sisters, what about you? What about you? He has sent this shepherd to you. And what are you going to do with him? Are you going to receive him? My counsel to you is that you would receive the good shepherd. And of course, I mean primarily in the sense of basic faith. I'm constantly amazed every time I come across someone who so lightly esteems the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel of grace. It is absolutely has nothing to them. It is an offense to them. They'd rather speak of anything else in this wicked world, any trivial matter, than the saving thing, the one thing that can save their life for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, if you're in that situation, you need to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he forever going to have such patience with you? He is very patient. There comes a time and a day when his patience runs out. I'd urge you to put your faith in Christ. But of course, when I say that you should receive the good shepherd, I also mean for those who are Christians, those who are believers, that you should receive his shepherding. What good is it to have such a wonderful, such a competent, beautiful shepherd when you don't listen to him? What good is it for you to have a shepherd who is able to make you into a perfect sheep? Perfect and wonderful and beautifully complete and mature and fruitful and all these things. He's able to do that. He's able to clean you. He's able to prune you. He's able to feed you and all these things. What good is that when you don't listen to him? He knows what's best for you. Do you say, ah, maybe so. I have my own ideas about what's good for a sheep. I've been thinking about this quite a bit. And I have my own theories about what's going to make me happy. And they're a little at odds to somewhat with what the shepherd thinks. And you cannot even see that you're sickly because you've been refusing the shepherd's medicine. You can't see that you're weak and malnourished because you've been refusing the shepherd's food. You choose something else and you don't even see yourself. My friends, receive the shepherd and his shepherding of you. Receive all the good things that he has for you. He's not trying to harm you. He's not trying to bring you to grief. He is the only one who knows you truly and he is able to to help you in every way. Receive his shepherding. Do not refuse it. The second application is learn to rightly value things according to God. As long as you have this world's value system or any remnant of it, any contamination from it, you are going to have serious problems. You really will. Things will be very bad for you if you have that value system. And young people in particular, what's going to happen to you if you have this world's value system? You're not going to value your Christian parents, which God says is one of the greatest privileges you could possibly have. You won't. 
You won't value your good church. You will not value your religious education. The only thing you will do in the end of all those things is envy what your worldly friends and their worldly situation has. And you will be of all people the most sad and depressing. As you not truly be able to throw yourself into those things, God will not allow you to enjoy those things, but on the other hand, you will not value and understand and be thankful for the very, those things that God has so blessed you highly with having. You must learn to receive God's value system rather than the world. And that is exactly what it says in Romans 12 too. Sometimes it's used as uh, for apologetics, and I'm sure it has some secondary application for apologetics, but Romans 12 too is about precisely this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's the idea. The proving is having a right estimation. The proving is understanding what is good and rejecting what is bad. The the being transformed is not being like the world, not being conformed to it, but being transformed in having God's value system. And it is fundamental And I put this again mainly to young people because it is so great value to you. And what I say is that we ought to treasure instead the things of God. Sell the world for cheap. They sold Christ for cheap. You sell the world and its things for cheap because that's all they're worth. But you treasure the things of God. Psalm 119, 161. Princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. You know, recall Pilgrim's Progress. One of the most dramatic scenes is their time in Vanity Fair. And the question is, what's the problem? What have they done? What is their great crime in Vanity Fair? Why are they people so stirred up? It takes you a while to figure it out. You know why? What really has offended them is that they so lightly esteem their things. The things that are so value to the world, the people in Vanity Fair, look at this, look at this, isn't it great? They are offended that they look at them like they're crazy and they look at these things like they're worthless plastic bubbles and they keep walking. And the people of the world can't stand that. Brothers and sisters, that is our situation. We must and rightly look at the things of this world and we lightly esteem them. We despise them in comparison with what we look forward to. We regard it as rubbish because we're on our way to Zion. And we have the true and eternal treasures. In Matthew thirteen forty four, I've recently quoted, I'll say it again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and he sells all that he has and buys a field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Do you see the value system? Do you see how different it is in the world? The world doesn't even think Christ is worth 30 pieces of silver. You sell all that you have. You're willing to do that in order that you might have the kingdom of heaven. Learn to value things as God does. And thirdly and finally, it's just a reminder that bad shepherds are God's judgment. Again, in in the... We didn't speak of verse 16, but verse 16 says, For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those who are broken, nor feed those that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. 
It's a great judgment. What a thought that God is giving to them. Bad shepherds, in his compassion, he had granted them the good shepherd. They reject him. And now in his final judgment, he says, here's your bad shepherd. Very poignant. I was recently had reason to go back through some of the works of Edwards and particularly of the time of his dismissal from his church. And people wonder, how do you end up dismissing Jonathan Edwards from your church? And they did, very cold-heartedly, very calculated. It wasn't just by a bare you know, majority of the people of Northampton. Um, a good, fair majority of that did, did so. And the question is, why? Well, that's too long to get into here, but of course we understand that they weren't all Christians. Only a very small minority of them came to the Lord's table. And they reacted just as the people in that time reacted to Christ. Didn't they? And we know that as people in their heart receive Christ, whether they receive him or reject him, so it is with, with those who come in his name. But anyways, after his dismissal, Edwards still wrote to them and still said, Look, I know I'm not your, your shepherd anymore, but I fear for you. I fear the road that you're going down. I don't want these false doctrines to get. And particularly, I fear that you would get an unregenerate man as your shepherd. And he says, Please don't do that because that would be to your destruction. Please don't do it. But you know, they despised and rejected him and eventually they got for themselves a shepherd after their own liking, a false shepherd who brought that church to utter ruin. And this church at once had perhaps the greatest theologian and preacher certainly of, in America. It would be difficult today to find a church that is more liberal, more in ruins in every sort of way than the first churches of Northampton. That's the situation. A reminder that is God's judgment. And therefore we ought to pray that God would have mercy in this, this time and this place and that he would send good shepherds to shepherd these evangelical concerns around us. I think of the many small struggling churches that all they need is a good man to come and to shepherd them. And maybe they would respond to those things. And what we pray is that he'd not give them over to false shepherds utterly because that would be a great judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that it is your heart to send your poor flock, the Good Shepherd, that you look upon those who are in deep trouble, those who are in the hands of thieves and murderers, and you send them your own son. Lord, we, what can we say to, with regard to those who would despise and reject him and sell him for 30 pieces of silver. There is no excuse that could be possibly fathomed for such behavior. And Lord, all we pray is that you'd enable us who are no better ourselves, but Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would do better, that Lord, we would receive the shepherd, that each and every one of us would receive Christ in our hearts, put our faith in him. And Lord, not just in name only, but in truth, that we would receive his shepherding, Lord, we recognize that sometimes it is uncomfortable for his word to be searching, his rebukes to come to us. Sometimes it is difficult for us to be pruned. But Lord, we pray that we would receive this work of the Good Shepherd and that we'd not reject it, we'd not despise it. And how we pray, Lord, that we'd have your value system, that we would value the things that you value, and we would despise the things that you despise. As we pray particularly for the young people among us that Lord, you'd enable them to be not conformed, but rather transformed by the renewing of their minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.